Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. This week, we'll continue our story on the three men named Alexandre Dumas. Previously, we learned the sad story of General Alexandre Dumas, a mixed-race Revolutionary War hero descended from slaves who unfortunately managed to make a personal enemy out of Napoleon Bonaparte, known racist and holder of grudges. This week, we'll study the General's son, the Alexandre Dumas you're probably most familiar with, author of best-selling plays and novels about swashbuckling musketeers, action, adventure, romance, and destiny. How will young Alex overcome the tragic circumstances of his father's early death to restore the honor of the name Dumas? Let's find out in this week's installation of The Three Alexandres. In the wake of his father's death, the young Alexandre Dumas II grew up wild. He was clever and funny and probably the type of guy to charm the pants off of any old lady in town, but he inherited his father's personality without his father's opportunities. Like his father, young Alexandre Dumas was athletic and strong, mesmerized by tales of adventure, and above all anxious to prove himself. Also like his father, Alexandre had hair which the 19th century would discreetly call frizzy or curly, recalling his grandmother, a black slave named Marie Cissette Dumas, though his skin was fairly light compared to his father. Unlike his father, Alexandre grew up without money, without access, and without education. When we last left off, Napoleon Bonaparte, king of the petty, exacted revenge against his old rival by withholding money and aid to the aging General Dumas. If you thought that the emperor would show mercy to the general's family now that the general was dead, you are mistaken. No, the saintly Marie-Louise tried her best to make the money last for her children, but eventually she was forced to run a tobacco shop to provide for the family. Unable to pay to send Alexandra away to school, and unable to stay home to keep an eye on him herself, Marie-Louise had to rely on family and friends to keep Alexandra out of trouble. Sometimes they succeeded. Most of the time, it seems, Alexandra spent his childhood running wild through the forests outside Vier Coderet, learning how to hunt for his food and, eventually, women. Because right from the beginning, young Alexandra had a big appetite for both. As a teenager, Alexandra made friends with a boy his own age named Adolf de Leuven. Adolf de Leuven was well-connected with a pretty irresistible background to someone like Alex. Adolf's father, a Swedish nobleman, now lived in exile in France after having helped murder the King of Sweden. 
Now, Adolf lived in Paris, hobnobbing with literary elites in between visits to his family friends in Vierre-Coderet, where he would hang out with Alex. After Alex and Adolf met, they quickly realized they shared passions for literature, theater, and pretty girls. At an age when Alex probably should have been figuring out what to do with the rest of his life, he and Adolf were busy staging productions and convincing all the prettiest girls in town to act out their plays. Alex was a heartbreaker, a pathological flirt, in love with every woman, and always at the same time. At the age of 16, Alex seduced his first girlfriend after convincing her that he wasn't out to harm her reputation, he was really in love with her. Yeah, right, that story's about as believable now as it was then. Afterwards, Alex promptly left this girlfriend in the dust, where she was desperate to find another man who would be willing to accept a girl with a damaged reputation, while Alex went off to chase skirts. If you think this is gross, you're right. And if you think this is a bad sign of things to come, you're right. Luckily for the young women of Vier Coderet, Alex was seized with the desire to move out of the sleepy suburbs and into Paris. The only problem was he needed a job. Luckily for young Alex Dumas, it was a new world because Napoleon Bonaparte, emperor of the French, enemy of the Dumas family, was dead possibly dead of the same stomach cancer which had carried away General Dumas so many years ago. Once again, a Bourbon king, Charles X, sat on the French throne. On the one hand, General Dumas' beloved revolution looked dead and gone. On the other hand, so was anybody who would care about Napoleon's old grudges. So for one of the first times in his life, Alexandre Dumas was able to call in a favor on behalf of his dad. Having petitioned every one of his father's old acquaintances begging for a job, one old friend of his father's took pity on the young man. General Foy, a high-ranking politician, would be happy to give him a job. Now, what was it that the young man was qualified to do? Are you any good at math? No, sir. Law? Uh, no, sir. Bookkeeping? No, sir. Oh, for heaven's sake, write down your address and I'll contact you if I can find a suitable appointment. As it turned out, Alexandre Dumas II had exactly one useful skill in this world. He had absolutely gorgeous handwriting. General Foy pulled strings to get Alex a job as a secretary for the Duc d'Orléans, cousin of the new king. As it turned out, Alex's first real job would become one of the most important opportunities of his life. One of the more touching elements of Alexandre Dumas' life story is his struggle to balance his creative work with his day job. His memoirs sound completely modern when he describes what you and I would call work-life balance. Most of the time, Alex managed to finish copying down all of his assigned documents within the first few hours of the day, and he spent the rest of his day dreaming and composing plays. One of his bosses, taking pity on the poor, uneducated young man, decided to take on the boy's education and put together a pretty respectable list of books and plays essential to any gentleman's knowledge. 
When Alex wasn't copying down letters of state or catching up on his classic playwrights, he was, surprise, surprise, chasing pretty women. Unfortunately for those pretty women, sometimes Alex caught them. Catherine LeBay was a beautiful seamstress who lived in the same building as the young Alexandra. After months of long walks around the courtyard, punctuated by some extracurricular activities, Catherine gave birth to a healthy baby boy who was named, yes, you've guessed it, Alexandra Dumas. Unfortunately for Catherine, Alexandre Dumas II was not about to be tied down to a woman when he had his eyes on fame and fortune. So despite being hardworking, loving, sensible, and, you know, the mother of his child, Alexandre refused to marry Catherine. Alexandre, having been born with light skin and having been raised after the death of the race-conscious Napoleon Bonaparte, generally suffered less prejudice than his father, the general, on account of his mixed-race status. Unfortunately, he was more than happy to doom his own son to a life of ridicule and shame in an era which cared deeply about the legitimacy of one's birth. Nevertheless, the ambitious young Alex continued to provide for his child through his earnings as secretary for the Duc d'Orléans, all the meanwhile writing his first scripts. Over the course of only two months, the 27-year-old Alexandre Dumas completed what he hoped would be his big break, a play called Henry III and His Court. Having drawn on the social connections of his childhood friend, Adolf de Leuven, as well as his brand new mistress, Alexandre prepared for his play's premiere. Behind the scenes, Alexandra struggled with needy actresses, demanding producers, and jealous rival playwrights. Meanwhile, Alexandra continued to work for the Duc d'Orléans, scribbling down letters as quickly as he could so as to slip out to the theater on his lunch break. Afterwards, the young man would head home to take care of his infant son and visit with his mother. The weeks were brutal, they were nerve-wracking, they were endless. And then finally, opening night was around the corner. It was at this moment, when Alexandre Dumas was busy spinning all of his plates in the air, that everything threatened to fall apart. A week before opening night, Marie-Louise, Alexandre's mother, suffered a terrible seizure which left her paralyzed on one side of her entire body. Unable to relieve her suffering, Alexandra decided not to postpone the show's opening. Instead, in these most crucial hours, he added his mother's caretaking to his long list of responsibilities. And the night before the curtain rose, Alexandra achieved at long last a meeting which was very long overdue. The young secretary finally met with his boss, the Duc d'Orléans. Approaching his boss at last, he spoke to the cousin of the king. Monseigneur, I have come to ask a favor. Henry III and his court is being played tomorrow for the first time. Will you do me the honor of being present? While he would love to do so, the prince replied that he would be spending that evening entertaining 30 princes and princesses at dinner that night. If you, sire, will advance the hour of your dinner, 
I will postpone the opening of my play so that your guests may attend. What an idea! Tell the usher to reserve our seats. On the night of February 11, 1829, the theater was overflowing with excitement. Theater insiders, eager to pass judgment on this young new playwright, secretly gawked at the princes and princesses settling into the best seats in the house, dripping in jewels and furs. Courtesans of the demi-monde walked on the arms of wealthy businessmen, elegant and tragic. Finally, in the cheap seats, all of Alexandra's friends. The curtain rose. While the actors held the audience's attention, Alexandra ran around backstage in a panic, directing props and making last-minute adjustments. During the intermission, instead of taking the pulse of the audience's reaction so far, Alexandra rushed home to sit at his mother's bedside, holding her hand. Rushing back to the theater, Alex made it in time for the conclusion. As silence rang out after the final line of the play, Alexandra held his breath. Suddenly, the crowd exploded into applause, screaming and cheering. The Duc d'Orléans rose to his feet and led the theater in a standing ovation. And just like that, Alexandre Dumas became a genuine overnight sensation. Thirty years after Napoleon Bonaparte vowed to stamp out the name Alexandre Dumas from public memory, a new Alexandre Dumas became the blazing bright star of France. For the next 20-odd years, Alexandre Dumas dominated the French cultural landscape. With only maybe Victor Hugo to outshine him, Alexandre produced a staggering number of plays and poems, which usually found tremendous commercial success. Unfortunately, under the pressure of so much fame and fortune, Alexandra's bad habits were about to grow into nothing less than hubris. Alexandra was generous with his heart and generous with his money, often at the same time. He kept mistress after mistress, only to find himself with more and more illegitimate children and bills at every dressmaker shop in town. He threw lavish parties and wouldn't hesitate to offer money to a friend in need, even when he couldn't afford to do so. At the same time, anyone whose moment in the sun had faded fell completely out of Alexandra's world. He was the definition of out of sight, out of mind. Baby Alexandre Dumas would be known to the rest of history as Alexandre Dumas fils, French for son, while his father, the author, was known as Alexandre Dumas père, or father. From the beginning, Alexandre fils was cursed with his father's name, a name which both cast a shadow over Alexandre's own career goals and which drew attention to his illegitimate birth. Alexandre Père may have meant well enough, but he was a forgetful man, and after setting up his son and his son's mother in a small apartment with the earnings from Henry III and his court, Alexandre Dumas Père's fatherly visits were only occasional. Alexandre Père was famous now, with all kinds of women and fans to keep him occupied, and baby Alexandre Fils knew only one true parent, his mother, 
Catherine LeBay. Catherine continued on raising her son as best she could, despite her complete lack of education and fortune. She continued working as a seamstress, maintained a spotless home, and raised her son to be hardworking, orderly, and honest. In short, to have control over himself. Unfortunately, that's precisely what Alexandre Fils was not allowed to have. Because Alexandre Père had a new mistress, and this mistress was jealous of Catherine LeBay. Why should an uneducated seamstress raise the child of France's great playwright? The new mistress urged Alexandre Père to officially acknowledge Alexandre Fils as his son, in order to take custody. For the next year, Catherine and Alexandre Père fought over baby Alexandre, whether in court or at home. Catherine went so far as to hide her beloved son from the authorities, urging him to stay quiet under her bed or helping him climb out of an upstairs window. Finally, inevitably, baby Alexandre Fils found himself placed in the care of his father, who promptly shipped him off to boarding school. For the rest of his life, Alexandre Fils would never forgive his father for this act. Many years later, in his memoirs, Alexandre Fils would describe his final afternoon at home with his mother, packing for a new life. He wrote, Every single article represented money earned in the sweat of her brow. Long periods of sitting up late into the night, sometimes until nearly dawn. I wonder whether the man who reduced her to the position of a poor, unmarried mother, forced to provide unaided for the needs of his child, ever realized what he was doing. For the next few years, Alexandre Dumas' père battled with a son who resented him completely. Alexandre Fils was enraged by a father who would treat his beloved mother so cruelly, a son who was embarrassed by his father's flamboyant spending and skirt-chasing, and a son who was ashamed of his own illegitimacy. The transition from his loving mother's quiet household to boarding school was completely traumatic. Many years earlier, when General Dumas was a young boy newly arrived in France and suffering from a lack of education, he too was sent to boarding school. And like Alexandre Fils's illegitimacy, the general's mixed-race parentage was hardly a secret. But the general had nevertheless been protected by his father's aristocratic title and his skill with a sword. Unfortunately for the general's grandson, Alexandre Fils had a famous father, but hardly an untouchable one, and he had no physical strength to defend himself from the endless taunts and torments he faced every day at school. Meanwhile, back in Paris, Alexandre Dumas spent his time the same way he would for the greater part of his life, writing, spending, and seducing with equal enthusiasm. That mistress who had been jealous of Catherine LeBay, the last woman, should really have been jealous of Ida Ferrier, the next woman. The vengeful other woman, realizing she'd been cast off like so many women before her, took her place in the long line of ex-mistresses demanding money from Alexandre Dumas, knowing he was too weak to say no. Meanwhile, 
Alexandre shacked up with Ida Ferrier, star of his newest play and his newest mistress, who also came with some baggage in the form of an elderly mother. Soon, Ida and her mother were added to the Alexandre Dumas charitable fund for women who want stuff, and once again Alexandre's box office success seemed to disappear into so many dress shops. If that wasn't enough, French society convinced Alexandre Dumas that it was time he threw a ball. And not just any ball, of course, but the grandest ball anyone had ever seen, with wall hangings custom painted by the greatest artists of the day just for the occasion, with an enormous feast which included a 30-pound salmon, endless deer, 300 bottles of Bordeaux, 300 bottles of Burgundy, 500 bottles of Champagne, and not one but two orchestras scattered throughout the party. As one guest wrote later, no matter who you are, prince, king, or banker, I defy you to create anything like so brilliant, so gay, so novel an occasion. You may have, for all I know, rooms more vast, suppers better arranged with uniformed attendants at the doors, but certainly you cannot have, no matter how much you are prepared to pay, such wall hangings improvised and carried out by the hands of masters. You cannot have so youthful and gay an assemblage of artists and celebrities. Least of all, can you have the unaffected and contagious cordiality of our leading dramatist, Alexandre Dumas. Finally, why not cap off this spending spree by making one final financial obligation? In 1840, after so many years as France's most eligible bachelor, Alexandre Dumas married Ida Ferrier. Everyone hated Ida. Definitely Alexandre Fils, who resented his new stepmother completely. Definitely all of Alexandre's former mistresses, for obvious reasons. And definitely the viewing public, who found Ida Ferrier unbearable with a nasally voice and not very much talent, and they really wished that Alexandre would stop casting her as the lead in all of his plays. On the other hand, one person who might have been pleased would be Alexandre's accountant, considering Ida Ferrier brought a dowry with her to the tune of 120,000 francs. The marriage lasted all of four years. When Ida finally packed her bags and left for Italy, bringing the last of her dowry back with her, Alexandre Dumas enjoyed a brief spell of peace and quiet. He was out of money, but he was alone, and for the first time in years, he was ready to leave his comfort zone. After 20 years of success on the stage, Alexandre Dumas was bored. It was time to try something new, something which would bring in fresh acclaim and fresh fortune. It was time to get himself elected into the company of the greats. In 1830, a tantalizing publication snuck its way into French bookstores. Jacques Puchet, a well-known French writer and lawyer, spent the final years of his career running Paris's police headquarters. Winding through the years before retirement, 
Boucher spent his time digging through the police archives, digging through 200 years of crimes, conspiracies, and confessions, looking for just the juiciest tales to share with the public. Among the 24 stories included in his anthology was a curious story he named The Diamond and the Vengeance about a young man betrayed by his friends. The young man, imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, dedicates the rest of his life to exacting revenge on his former friends. At some point over the next 10 years, Alexandre Dumas stumbled across a copy of this little text, made a dog ear on the page, and found the inspiration for what would become his greatest, most popular, and most enduring work, a tale of destiny, romance, and above all else, justice. By the middle of the 19th century, many best-selling authors chose to publish their newest works chapter by chapter in the best-selling newspapers of the day. For Alexandre Dumas, who was paid by the word, this new way of publishing turned him into basically Scheherazade, spinning an endless tale that kept the country fascinated and kept creditors at bay. So on August 28th, 1844, the Journal de Debat, the most widely read newspaper in France, reserved most of its newest issue for a new piece by Alexandre Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo. To say it was a hit would be an understatement. The Count of Monte Cristo was a phenomenon. Think back to the days when Harry Potter books were being released. Imagine the insanity if they'd only been released a chapter at a time. Over the next year and a half, Alexandre Dumas unfurled the sweeping tale of Edmond Dantes, betrayed by his friends and sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. Locked up on a miserable island, in a fortress forgotten by the world, Edmund fades from the public memory over the course of six long years behind bars. Befriending an old Italian priest in the jail, the two prisoners dig a tunnel to freedom and Edmund makes his way back to France. But what will he do when he finally confronts those who originally betrayed him? The public lost its mind. The Count of Monte Cristo was everywhere and I do mean everywhere. As one literary historian wrote, after the publication of The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas became probably the most internationally famous French novelist of any period. As one critic wrote at the time of its publication, The Count of Monte Cristo is the most popular book in Europe. Perhaps no novel within a given number of years had so many readers and penetrated into so many different countries. I found one review of an English edition stating that it may be taken for granted so wide has been the circulation of the Count of Monte Cristo that everyone is familiar with its invention. That review was published in 1845, before the final volumes had even been published. The Catholic Church, outraged by Dumas' use of religious imagery, 
added the Count of Monte Cristo to its list of prohibited books, which did absolutely zip to its sales. Within 30 years of its publication, the book was a bestseller as far away as Syria. By the end of the 19th century, The Count of Monte Cristo would be a classic in Japan. After the success of The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas was no longer simply the most popular playwright or novelist in France. He was one of the most popular writers in the world. Alexandre Dumas had reached the absolute pinnacle of his career, and he had cemented a place for himself in the history of French literature. And yet, it was not only the money and the fame which brought such satisfaction to Alexandre Dumas. Take a moment to think about the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, a loyal man betrayed by those he thought he could trust, locked away out of sight, out of mind, in a prison across the ocean. When, after so many years in prison, Edmond Dantes emerges, he isn't defeated or weakened. Instead, he emerges stronger and more righteous than ever before. For Alexandre Dumas, whose only personal memories of his father were of a man beaten and broken by imprisonment, the story itself was cathartic. As he wrote in an essay shortly after the book's publication, Jacques Pouchet's prison archives were one inspiration for Alexandre Dumas. And now, he says, everyone is free to find another source for the Count of Monte Cristo than the one I give here. Alexandre Dumas could, in his own way, make things right for his father. Yet another question remained. Could he make things right for his son? Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. If you haven't done so already, visit the website at www.thelandofdesire.com to find out more about today's episode and like us on Facebook. This week, I'm issuing a challenge. We are 11 reviews away from our 100th iTunes review. Let's try to reach 100 reviews before March 1st. Please, please, please. If you have two minutes this week, please rate and review the show on iTunes because it helps attract new listeners to the show. Afterwards, join me again in two weeks for the next episode on our series on the three Alexandres. Until then, au revoir!